The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. All right, let's go ahead and get started. I'm almost, I'm almost reluctant to, to break this up. I'm almost reluctant to break this up because this is one of the purposes that we have this class. Um, the Gospel Center Life, we've held every semester for the past three years now. Uh, purpose is twofold. It's one, to do what you guys have already been doing. Uh, we have people that are new to Park Church, new to the city, trying to get plugged in, trying to find community. Um, this is one of the avenues to do that. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about our gospel communities. That's where more of our sustained life and community takes place. Um, but this is one of our on-ramps to do that. Uh, one of the coolest things for me to see is when groups of people meet here in this class, and then we have something called Group Connect here in about five weeks. Um, on a Sunday after each of the services, it's kind of like, people say this a lot, but it's kind of like speed dating for small groups. Like you just go down to the basement, and there's small groups everywhere, and you have a little card with a map on it. And you're trying to figure out, okay, who could I go meet, check out, visit a group, see if I can get plugged in there. Um, but the coolest thing is when you know, a handful of people meet in this class and then go together on that Sunday and find a gospel community together. So develop relationships, develop friendships. If you can, sit at the same table. By no means required. I'm, I'm kind of a, a destabilizer. I like to find different seats, meet different people. Uh, but if you can, gain some continuity, get some traction in relationships over the next four weeks, and then carry that into finding a gospel community together. Um, that is our sustained means for um, just kind of daily rhythms of life on life, uh, life, living as the family of God. So that's one purpose. The other purpose is talk about the gospel. Um, for some of us, that's something that we've heard a thousand times and it feels stale. It feels like, and I, I get the gospel, I understand the gospel, I, I've heard that, I believe it, I've stepped through that threshold. Um, I don't really need anything in more with the gospel, let's move on to something different. For some of us, maybe it's a, it's a brand new concept. Uh, maybe you've, you've heard the term, haven't really ever had it defined. Uh, maybe you never have. Maybe you grew up in a context where that was never talked about. Uh, maybe this is the first church you've come to and you're just curious to find out more. So we're all coming from different places. Uh, we want to talk about how the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of this man named Jesus Christ who lived in a, a particular place in Nazareth around 2,000 years ago, his life and his work actually means something for us today. And not just kind of like when we're here on church, you know, when we're in a small group and when we're praying with our family or, or friends, it's for all of life. I mean, we looked at it yesterday, uh, Brian walked us through Ephesians 2 and how good works applies to, to all of life. Um, it's our vocations, it's our careers, it's, it's what we get paid for, it's also what we, not, we don't get paid for. Um, the gospel applies to all these different things. So we, wanna, we just want to take some time in this class for four weeks and, and slow down and say, okay, how? How does that actually get worked out? How, how does what, what some guy 2,000 years ago did actually apply to me now? Like, how does it actually mean something to get played out practically in the everyday, um, just kind of feeling seemingly mundane aspects of life? Uh, we believe it does. We're convinced the Bible teaches that it does. Um, that it's not just a, a true thing, but it's a beautiful thing. The life that we're called to uh, through Scripture and through the Gospel is a, it's a really good and beautiful reality for all of us to live in together. Um, we have water coming up. We have water here. In just a few minutes, it is coming. This is, this is like uh, experimental in this room. This is a new space for us. Um, we used to have tenants that were up here. So this is like the first time Gospel Center, Gospel Center Life has ever been up here. Um, it's a little sweaty, and I'm sorry for that. We've got fan going. Um, we'll take breaks. Restrooms, we'll take a break about halfway through. Um, we'll do some discussion around our tables as well. Restrooms are through that door. Take a right all the way at the end of that hallway. There are two restrooms down there. 
Um, all right, logistics, anything else? All right, so these, the books that we're going to go through, um, called The Gospel Center Life, um, we're going to have these available for you each week at your tables. Um, we'll quote from it, and I'm going to teach some. We have some other, other pastors who are going to be teaching some as well. Um, this is kind of our, our baseline for this class. Uh, it's just a really good resource. Like, there are nine lessons in here. We only have four weeks, and so we, like, I'm doing lessons one through four, technically, tonight. Um, so it's a lot to go through. I highly encourage you guys, if you want to dive further into this content, uh, pick up one of these books. Um, we just asked five bucks for them. Um, they're over there at the table. We'll, have, we'll get the, the square and the iPad um, at the break and then afterward. We're sharing. You know they, they updated the square? Is anyone familiar with this? And now the old squares don't work on the old devices. So we have like six squares floating around the building, and none of them work except for the one new one we have. So the class downstairs right now has it. So we may just like storm them in the middle of their class and say we need to swipe some credit cards and then we'll leave. Um, actually, we'll just, James will go get it a little bit later. Um, but I encourage you guys, again, we'll go through this some uh, throughout the course of this class. Uh, but there are exercises in here, there are articles in here. I encourage you to, to dive in further if you want to. It's also good content to go through with a, with a small group. Um, that's originally how it was created. It was, it was people taking anywhere from 10 to 20 people um, through what does it mean to, to live a gospel-centered life. So, I think that's everything for logistics. I always forget details. I'm like, off into something else. So I'll probably remember them halfway through, and I'll be sure to enlighten you guys. Uh, my name's Neil. I'm a pastor here. I don't think I mentioned that detail. Uh, I'm a pastor here at Park Church. Uh, my wife, Erin, she's in the back. We've been here at the church for about four years. Um, grew up in the Midwest. Uh, Colts fan. Grew up 20 minutes outside of Lucas Oil Stadium. Peyton Manning followed me out here uh, 10 months after we moved. Um, it took 10 months, but I pulled, pulled a few strings and, and got him out here. Um, so it's, it was an easy move to, to, to become a Broncos fan. All right, let me pray, and let's jump into the concept for tonight. Father, we thank you for uh, this thing called the gospel wherever we're coming tonight in relationship to uh, this reality, uh, the work that you've done on our behalf, I pray that, uh, that you'd help us to see, yeah, that we would um, be able to see your word for what it is. God, if we've grown up believing that the gospel is, is something that uh, is just secluded to some religious or, or sacred realm of our lives, um, help us to, to see with clarity how your word speaks to a, a greater reality. Uh, that, that your work on the cross, Jesus, that your work in the resurrection, that the fact that you reign over all things now, the fact that, that you will come again, that you will uh, restore everything, that you will wipe away every tear, that you will right all wrongs, that you are God of, of justice, uh, who loves us deeply, who's ushered us into a, a family. Uh, may those realities, may, may that gospel narrative uh, become the, the operative framework for for every moment of every day for us, more and more and more. Um, so may it not be some distant thing, but may it be a felt thing. Uh, help us to learn from each other. May we have good discussion. May we, may we look into your word and, and learn from others who have gone before us. Uh, we need your help. So Spirit, please come. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a question for you guys. What makes a story a good story? Conflict. Conflict. As he leaves, drops the mic, and leaves the room. All right, conflict. What else? You can just shout it out. Character 
Character development, great. Complex characters. Complex characters, great. A happy ending. Good. All right, so I want to tell you guys a story about two individuals named Jim and Marvel. Yes, her name is Marvel, not like Marble, like Marvel. We'll get to the reason why she was named Marvel. Uh, but Jim grew up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, not too far from the real Slim Shady, uh, but much before the real Slim Shady. Uh, lettered in just about every sport he played, uh, went off to college, um, grew up in a Christian home, loved Jesus from a very early age. And was just good at pretty much everything he did. Uh, Marvel grew up in Toledo, Ohio, which isn't too far from Detroit. She was born to a 73-year-old father and a 29-year-old mother. They were married. He died several years later. But they decided to name her Marvel because it was a marvel that a 73-year-old man could create a child. And so her name is Marvel. So Jim and Marvel grew up not too far apart from each other. And they first met in the Midwest at a Big Tent Revival. You know what a Big Tent Revival is back in the 50s? It's like, hey, let's go sing a bunch of hymns. Let's preach the gospel. Billy Graham was like the, the initiator of all these things. So they were both at this same Big Tent Revival. And Marvel was up front. She was singing. And Jim was in the back noticing Marvel the entire time. He's like, I need to stick around. I probably wouldn't stick around that long for this Big Tent Revival, except for the fact that that lady's singing, I, I need to talk to her, I need to, to get to know her. So he stuck around for a while, he happened to bump into her um, after the, the revival, and they talked a lot that night, and then a lot the next night, and then the next night, and the next night, and two weeks after that, they were engaged. Six months after that, they were married, and ten months after their wedding day, they looked into the eyes of their firstborn child, Kevin. So a lot happened in just over a year of time for these two individuals, Jim and Marvel. 60, 61 years later, to this day, they're still married, and they just celebrated well, just over six decades of marriage together. Uh, beautiful story. Obviously not easy all the way through, ups and downs through the marriage, but here they stand now celebrating uh, three children later, seven grandchildren later, and, oh, I don't know, maybe five or six great-grandchildren now. Um, still married, still loving Jesus, still serving faithfully in their various vocations. I'd say that's, that's a good story. It's not, it doesn't have the complex character development. I could, I could push pause and I could tease those out a little bit further because I agree with you. We, do, we need the, content, the character development. But that, we could say that's a, that's a good story. Now, if I'm reporting this story, what makes that good news? Like if you're going to hear good news, what makes something good news? I want to write these up. So if you hear a story, you hear a reality, hear something reported, and you say, yes, implicitly, that is, that's good news. What are, the, what are the kind of the prerequisites for that? It's positive. It's positive. What else? Uh, hopeful. Hopeful. Great. Worth knowing about. Good. Relatable. 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 
Anything else? Now what if, oh, go ahead. Inspiring? So what if, what if I turned around and said, ah, it's just a lie. The story's not true. Jim and Marvel made them up about half an hour ago just so I could have a little story, a little fun story. It, it, it loses, it's still kind of, oh, that's exciting. It was nice in the moment. But it loses something of its, of its weight, doesn't it? So if somebody reports something to you and you're like, that's amazing. Like, the Broncos won yesterday. And they're like, great, this is incredible. And they say, oh, actually, I'm just kidding. They, they didn't. Uh, Peyton Manning actually broke his ankle and he's out for the season. All of a sudden, it becomes not good news anymore. So is there a, is there a third category? I'm trying to, like, lead you guys into third category. It's true. It's true. I love it. That is uh, usually a prerequisite for, for something being good news. So if we're going to put headers on these, I would say for something to be good news, quite simply, it needs to be good, positive, hopeful, inspiring. You could list off a number of different words. It needs to be good in a, in a weighty sense, like you need to feel the goodness of it. It's got to be true or historical, like it actually took place. And then third, it needs to be meaningful. Like there needs to be some sort of weight to it for my own life. Not just that it's, it's good over there, but for it to truly be good news, it needs to, to be applicable to me in a way that I can make sense of that. And one of the details I forgot, I have uh, outlines in the center of your table that you guys can walk through. We're going to more or less go through that. Um, and then the, the colorful cards, we'll go through those a little bit later too. All right, so for good news to truly be good news, it needs to be good, it needs to be historical, it needs to be meaningful. Now, the way the story about Jim and Marvel becomes a little bit more weighty and meaningful for me is because those are actually my grandparents. So when I tell that story, I'm not just telling a story about two arbitrary people that have 60 years of marriage and have seen all three of their kids and seven of their grandkids come to know Jesus and they have served faithfully in their city in different vocations. But it's actually my grandparents where... Their second child was Linda, my mom. And, and their marriage has served as an example for, for me growing up. Um, they, they've loved me. They've served me. They've cared for me. They continue to be an example for my wife and I um, as we progress. So it, it's meaningful in a, in a greater sense. So for good news to truly be good news, we want it to be good. We want it to be meaningful. Uh, and we want it to be historical. It actually happened. Um, so let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you guys have your Bible, phone, there's a couple Bibles in the center of the table. And let's read about a different type of good news. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. This is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All right, so in verse 1, Paul uses the word gospel. Does anyone know what gospel literally means? Like in the original language, good news. That's why I led with a story about good news, just to bring you to this point. So gospel literally means euangelion in the Greek, good news. That's how people would have heard it. Say this is a proclamation, It's it's a heralded, proclaimed, declared reality about something that has happened. So if we trace those same three themes, good, historical, meaningful, we see that come out in this text. So we see in in verse 3, middle of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. So this is good news. And not only is it just good news arbitrarily, but it's meaningful for us because he died for our sins. Not just someone's sins, he didn't just die for sins out there. It wasn't a hypothetical death, it wasn't a hypothetical sacrifice. It was for us, it was for our sins. He died our death. And then he lists off a number of people that that he actually appeared to after he was resurrected, after he was raised from the dead. So this is a historical reality. Like it's something that that actually took place in history. Now the truth is, maybe you've you've heard this a thousand times. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it. But this good news, though the Bible may declare it and say, hey, this gospel, this transforms your life, this is fundamentally... uh, renovating for you, like it changes everything, it doesn't always feel that way. It feels like this distant narrative that, yes, I'm supposed to believe, I'm supposed to get the theology down, I'm supposed to, uh, to kind of get my, my, my doctrinal I's dotted and T's crossed, and once I get all those things figured out and can pass the test, then that's sufficient. And now I, I just like labor hard and work hard to, to be a good Christian and, and, and do the things I'm supposed to do. So let's pull back and let's see, what, what is the grand narrative? Like, what is the story that God is actually telling throughout history? What is this whole book actually about? How do we fit all the different pieces into the singular story that God is telling throughout history and through humans? So we're going to go through it quickly, um, but want to go through it nonetheless, because this makes sense of the gospel. So this is, uh, I think it's the, the greenish card. It's a, it's a good resource that goes through the arc of, of Scripture. All right, so we begin with creation. Genesis 1 and 2 lays out for us the narrative of how before there was anything material, and before there was space and time, God existed in, in his, his triune self, loving uh, the, the eternal love that existed there, and he created. He spoke into existence all that is. Brian laid out that uh, for us to some degree yesterday, uh, if you're here for that. But flip over to Genesis 1. And I want to pull out just a couple things from that. So Genesis 1 lays out these rhythms of God creating things. He creates the space 
and then the things that, that exist within that space. So he creates the sky, and then he creates the birds. And you can, you can um, see the, the pattern that goes throughout Genesis 1. And then he, then he gets to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So at the climax of creation, God creates uh, basically representatives of, of himself to steward creation. He creates the raw materials, and he says that there's so much value wrapped up. There's so much opportunity and potential wrapped up. So much culture wrapped up into what I've created. Now I'm going to create humans to, to represent my reign and rule, to steward faithfully what I've already created, to build societies, to start families, uh, to live under my good reign, to recognize my authority, um, but then to, to have kind of a, a sub-authority, uh, to be a vice-regent, a uh, representative of the true king. So that's what he, that's what he creates us for. That's, that's what human beings are for, to show forth the glory of God and the tangible everyday realities of what we do. See a little bit more specific in uh, verse 15 of chapter 2. So if you go to the next chapter. So if Genesis 1 is like the, the broad, overarching scope of creation, chapter 2 uh, narrows down in. It just highlights certain aspects of it. So that's why it seems like it repeats. So verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So he gives them, he gives them a job to do. It's like, hey, I've... I've Established this garden. Um, I've created things. Now, now go steward it. Go, go build something. Go, go develop it. Go steward it so that, that more value comes. And as you create more people, that it's going to be a blessing to them, that, that people would flourish on this, on this earth. And then verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, there's, there's so much debate about, okay, what is the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What it's not is just some arbitrary command where God put these people in his good creation and said, all right, I, just, I need to create some sort of rule just to exercise my authority. So that tree right there, don't touch it, don't eat of it, don't do anything, just don't go near it. Um, everything else is fine for you, just don't eat of that one. It's not that. It's not an arbitrary rule. Um, if you look at this concept of, of the knowledge of good and evil, throughout all of Jewish history, it's, it's talking about growing into maturity. And so as a child grows up in the home of his parents, his or her parents, like, over time they learn. They, they, they walk into the knowledge of good and evil. Like morality becomes something that is taught, that is received, that is seen, and they begin to understand and, and discern for themselves, oh, this is... This is right, this is wrong. I can discern between different realities. I can see truth and I can see error. So, so that's the concept that's, that's been gone after here. God is saying, hey, I've created you. Now walk with me. Trust me. D don't try to step outside of my authority and go figure it out on your own. 
Don't try to, to, to grow and develop and become mature and, and figure these things out, defining your own systems. Trust me. Like, my word is good. If you listen to it, if you walk according to it, if you abide in relationship with me, it will lead to life. It will lead to flourishing. It will lead to what you're, you're meant for as a human being. So that's what's going on here. Whatever else in terms of the, of the tree being there, God is saying, obey my word because that is where you find life. Trust me. So that's what we have in verses 16 and 17. The God creates the woman. Um, there's, there's family. There's community. And then there's the naming. All right, so that's creation. Skipping over things. You guys can... Actually, this is a, a great plug for this book. This would be the, worth the price of the, the five bucks. Or just stick around late and read the section. In the introduction in this book, it lays out um, the whole story of the world. Like, what is God doing through human history? What is the, the story of Scripture? Uh, it's like three or four pages long. Really good summary of this. So if there are things in here you want to press in further to, grab one of those and, and, and hop into it. All right, so now let's jump to chapter 3. That's creation. God, God created everything good, in fact, very good. He created humans to trust Him, to walk with Him, to abide in Him, and, and to, to build societies, to build things, to, to be creative, to develop the raw materials of, of the world. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here he's testing God's authority. Did he really say this? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you guys notice what she added? You're the first Pharisee in the history of the world. You're the first legalist. She adds a rule that God never said. So he said, he said you can't eat it. She got that part right, but then she added to the law. She added to what God had given for her good and said, neither shall you touch it. It's an extra law. God never said that. It's probably, not, it's probably wise to not touch it, but that's, that's, that's not the law that was given. It said, don't eat of it. Lest you die. The servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. So here flatly contradicts what God has said. Lies to her. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. There's a lot of truth in that. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, he, he's, he's correct there. The lie that he initially said, you won't die, there's actually truth on the backside of it. You actually will become like God in ways that you're not meant to yet. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was des- to be desired to make one wise, so her affections are engaged. It's not just kind of, oh, I want to break a rule, but she actually delights in the thing that she's about to partake in. That genuinely her affections are stirred by it. I see that. I desire that. Um, something tangible, but also something intangible. The wisdom that can come from breaking God's law, from disobeying um, this God who's been so kind to me. Um, I actually desire it. I want it. Uh, she took of its fruit and ate it. And ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of, of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So shame entered the world. Guilt and shame entered the world, whereas it was never before known. So this is what we call the fall. It's a fall into sin. It is, there was perfect, unified relationship with God the Creator, with a proper authority who's, who's a kind father. He's a good king. Like he, he exercises control over his universe and says, trust me, 
I've given my word to you. Walk with me. Trust me. Trust me. And the first humans say, in, in us with him, and when we see it play out in our own lives over and over and over again, said, no thank you. Actually, I, I'm wiser than you are. I can figure this out on my own. I don't need to, to trust you. Submission, no thanks. Like, I actually, I like my own self-driven authority, my, my own morality that can develop out of my own sense of, of what's around me, better than what you give to me. So because the realities around me communicate something different, I'm, I'm not going to trust you. Relationship between God and people, God and humans, that was meant to be this, this beautiful unity, beautiful expression of us living out and into the life that God has created for us, becomes severed, like utterly destroyed. Because we have rebelled against the perfectly holy and righteous God. We'll talk more in later weeks about the holiness of God, the justice of God, alongside the love of God. But both of those are part of God's character. So God cannot be in the presence of that which is antithetic, like antithetical to, his, to who he is, who, what his character is. So when there is sin, when there is rebellion, when there is, is a lack of righteousness, God's very presence cannot, cannot dwell there in a kind way. So that's what we have in the fall. Creation, everything is good, meant to move forward, meant to develop cultures and societies and, and move forward and start families and do it under God's good reign. And we say, no, thank you, I want to do it the way I want to do it. I'm going to pursue a different route, and we, we lose that relationship, that intimate connection with the God of the universe that we're meant to, to know and, and be known by. But there's hope. So, so I mentioned before, we got to tether together these ideas that, that God is holy and just and righteous, and he's also loving and kind and gracious. These are not two different gods. We don't have the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. We don't have you know, God's good days and God's bad days. Like we have a singular God who is, who is simple. Now, hear me right, it's not simplistic. It's simple in the sense that, that every attribute, every characteristic of God has to be a lens through which we understand every other aspect or attribute of God. So when we look at God's love, we, we look at through his love into his holiness and justice, into his kindness, into his mercy. We, we see everything else through his love. And then we move over to his holiness and we, we see through that lens every other aspect of who God is. That's the, that's the beautiful complexity and yet uh, simple nature of, of God's character. So, but he, he gives hope. So let's jump down to verse 14. Well, well first, uh, go to verse 9. So they're hiding. The people hide. They, they run from the presence of God. The, the very thing that is meant to be life for them, they run in shame. They're scared. They're fearful. They're covering themselves. And all of us can relate to that. Having seasons in our life, maybe you're in one right now. Um, you look back to, to past experiences, you look to certain relationships, and there's a shame, there's hiding, there's covering. We want to run from these things. That's what they're doing with God, who, who's the kind creator and sustainer of, of their very lives. So they run from him, and then verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is a drawing out. This is a, a seeking after, a pursuing of people and saying, I want to know where you are. I want to reconnect with you. I want to, I want to love you again. He says, where are you? And he, Adam, man, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was, a, I was naked, I, I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? The man said, the woman... <laughs> 
the woman whom you gave to, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. So here we have the, the first blame shifter in the history of the universe. We can all relate to that, right? Like finger pointing. It wasn't me. It was that one over there. Clearly that one over there. It's easier if they're like further removed from the situation. They can't hear you because they can't defend themselves. Well, the woman is actually there, so she could defend herself. And she just passes the buck even further. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this... What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, I'm going to skip through this. Um, perfect. Verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. This is speaking to the, to the serpent who represents Satan, the great enemy of God throughout history between her, your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you guys remember that scene? Have you guys ever seen um, Passion of the Christ a number of years ago? It's not like one of those, hey, it's Friday night, what movie do you want to watch? Pop popcorn. It's like weighty. So I remember the first time seeing that. Do you guys remember the intro scene, like the, the, the beginning scene in that movie? Everyone jumped in the theater where I was. There's that snake that goes through, it's just like slithering through the garden, and all of a sudden this heel just slams down on top of its head. This is what it's referring to. In fact, Jesus refers back to this later, uh, and then Paul does in Romans. It is, the, it is the crushing of the head of the serpent. So even here, we have a, a picture of, a pointing to, the good news of the gospel. So even right in the midst of their sin, like it just happened. And God is saying, ultimately, I'm going to unfold a plan throughout history to save and to redeem. I'm, and even this word offspring, like nerd out for a while and do a word study on offspring throughout Scripture. Who is the, who is the ultimate offspring? Well, first it's, it's Israel. It's Abraham and then his offspring, the promise is given. And then you've got the whole people of God, the, the Israelites, who are the offspring, who, who is the son of God in a sense. And then you have Jesus who comes as the true offspring. He becomes the true Israel. And so what this is pointing to, the true seed, that's another way to put it, the true seed who comes and crushes the head of the serpent is Jesus Christ himself. So even here we have, they call it the proto-evangelium, because it's the, it's the first announcement of the gospel um, that we see here in Genesis 3. All right, let's, let's stop there. So, okay, so creation, fall, broken relationship with God. But even in the midst of that, as the curses are being doled out, we see a pointer to the gospel. We see a pointer to Jesus Christ. And then you have the Old Testament where it's the unfolding of God's redemption. And it's, that's a really short, overly succinct summary of the entire Old Testament. But is God unfolding his plan throughout history to redeem a people for himself, And it comes out in different ways, and you see the ups and downs, and you see different leaders and different kings and different uh, realities take place with that people. But ultimately, you have this one who comes in named Jesus. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And here, John is intentionally pointing us back to Genesis 1. 
in the beginning language. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without, without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then verses 6 through 8 is about John the Baptist. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So this is, this is pointing back to the fall, the fact that there's rejection and rebellion before God. Verse 11, he came to his own, came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then um, verse 16, For from him, his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So here what John is introducing in his gospel is that there is an eternal Logos. There's an eternal word or wisdom or word, uh, of God. Through this word, through this, this Logos, all things have been created. Um, Jesus has been defined as he's not only like the, the sun, like the sun that's in the sky, um, that you can see it and see its brightness, but by it you can also s- see everything else. So Jesus is the one, he's the light of the world that is not only glorious and bright in himself, but looking to him and looking through him and walking with him, we see everything else as it's meant to actually be seen. So that's what John lays out for us. And, and what I want to point out um, most crucially here is verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is not just some sort of distant, transcendent, other holy God who, who remains disconnected from us. But in fact, the, the promise that he made there in Genesis 3.15, that he will crush the head of the serpent, he fulfills by sending his son, by sending the very wisdom of God, the word of God, sending Jesus Christ to take on flesh and dwell among us, to relate to us, to eat as us, to sleep as us, to be with us, uh, to show what is this glory of God? Like, what is he actually like? It says no one has ever seen God, but if you've seen Jesus, you've seen him. You understand who this God is that, that we've been estranged from because of our, our rebellion, because we're, we've, we've turned against the king. We've turned against the creator and said, we don't want to do things your way. We all feel that. Like, that's, that's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1. It's like everyone's in the same boat. Like, we all have a sense of morality. Where we, we draw the lines, where, where you kind of um, you know, say this is right, this is wrong, and how, how you define certain terms, it looks a little bit different from person to person. It may look different from culture to culture. We all have a sense of like, there is something transcendent. There is something right. There is something wrong. There is something beyond just this material, what I can see and in, in, in touch um, right here in the, in the midst of this. We all recognize that. And we run from that. Like we, we, we encase ourselves, we have different arguments, we have different proofs, we think. Um, 
And those need to be engaged on their own terms, absolutely. But at the end of the day, all of us have a sense of there is something. There is divine. There is transcendent. Even if that's like the only starting point, we recognize there's something. If nothing else, there are some moral claims that we want to make and and kind of put our stake in the ground and say, well, I don't don't care what culture you're from. I don't care what your background is. I don't care, you know, know, postmodern coexist, whatever. It's just wrong. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, it doesn't matter. I'm going to draw lines around this. Again, those, those are going to be different for different people. But we recognize there is a transcendent morality. And morality is something deeply personal. You don't get morality from, from rocks and trees and walls. You get morality from, from person-to-person relationship. So if there is a transcendent morality, there, there is a, a lawgiver. Like there is a, a one who defines and describes what this morality is. So we all recognize that. Like the light, the light that, um, in verse 4 of, of chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Like we all have aspects of this light. At the end of the day, there's, there's no ultimate running from it. Um, we, we recognize that. So we all feel aspects of the fall. comes out in different ways. Um, in our more honest moments, we really feel the aspects of the fall. I mean, can anyone relate to that? Like I... Sometimes I just, I respond in the strangest of ways. I'll look back on the situation. I'll be like, really, Neil? Like, seriously? That, that's the way that, that you respond to that situation. You're, you're, just, you're just weird. Like, sinful, broken, yes, but sometimes I'm just weird. And we all feel that. And sometimes it's, it seems entirely rational to us, but we still, we're bent inward on ourselves. And that's what the ancients called um, inse incurvatus. Uh, the, the, the inward curvature of the self. Like, we're, we're just turned inward. You picture an arrow just kind of going out and coming right back in. Like, what's in it for me? How do I benefit? How, how do I gain from this? That's like implicit for us. So, we all feel aspects of that. If we're honest, we recognize we need a salvation that comes outside of ourselves. Because if that's what's going on internally, like if that's the, the corruption that I feel, that's what exists, then I've got to be honest with myself. I I can't save myself. I can't rearrange the pieces within my heart and my soul and say, okay, now now I'm better. Now now I've arrived and I've figured out. Well, but how do we define morality? Like as you go before God, he's he's not defining things in terms of, all right, what is just externally expressed? Uh, what, what, What are the behaviors and the words? He's looking all the way to what are the motivations of the heart? What are the desires? What are the affections? We go back to Genesis 3. Eve looked at the fruit, saw the, the, the wisdom that came from it, and she, she delighted in it. She wanted it. She was enticed by it. James chapter 1 uses the same language. He's like, and when you sin, don't blame God. You can't blame anybody but yourself. You, you have desires. And when you give in to those desires, they start spinning out of control, and all of a sudden you wind up in, in sin, and that sin gives birth to death. Now, that's the logic of Scripture. <coughs> That disconnection from God, rebelling against Him, the definition of sin, the natural conclusion, if you're disconnected from life, is that you're going to wither away, like you're, you're going to fall apart. It may not feel like it in the moment, but over time we start just like falling apart. And ultimately we, we die, um, and, and that's it. There's, there's judgment and condemnation um, waiting for us. Whereas if we're connected with life, 
then we have life forevermore. So that, that's, that's the redemption piece. That, that is what God has worked for us in the gospel. So, getting back to the question of, all right, a lot of times the gospel doesn't feel like good news necessarily. If this story is true, like if the Bible actually tells us truth about the human existence, not just, all right, if you subscribe to this sect or that's your, your religious box you check, but it's actually true for all people in all times, in all places, all cultures, all of it. It's actually true that we need redemption. Like we need someone to work on our behalf outside of ourselves in order to bring us out of this rebellion, out of this death, out of this sin. And all of a sudden, if, if we start believing this narrative and feeling the weight of this narrative, then all of a sudden this redemption that has been worked through the person and work of Jesus Christ becomes weighty and massive and important and something we want to cling to every day of our lives. So last piece quickly, and then we'll take a break. So this is, think, redemption. This is God intervening. Like So creation, fall, Old Testament is like pointing toward redemption. We have all these, these pictures and historical realities that point ahead to Jesus Christ coming. And Jesus said, hey, I'm coming back. Like not just in a, yes, my, I'm going to send my spirit to fill you. Like I'm going to send my presence to be with my people. Um, but I'm also going to come back bodily and I'm going to, I'm going to right all wrongs. We won't read it now, but Revelation 21, the first five verses of Revelation 21, it's where he talks about wiping away every tear, about righting every wrong, all, all sorrow done away with. Like that, that is the hope of the gospel. That, that's a story that the, that the Bible tells. Not just some ethereal, hopeful, man, I hope things get better someday, that's not what the Bible says. It's, it's going to happen. And we get aspects of that. So like this, this redemption is moving us toward uh, restoration, the restoration of all things, where, where Jesus, he, is, he reigns now, but then his reign as king is going to be felt everywhere by all people in all places. And either that's a good thing for us or that's a really bad thing for us, depending on what we do with Jesus in this life. But this restoration is, is being pulled back into, like we're getting aspects of that being played out in the present life now because of this work that, that God has done for us in Jesus. So that's that's highly nutshell version, but this is the story of the world. This is the story of the Bible. You can fit every narrative, every book, every prophet, every letter, every gospel, everything into this story of the world. And this is, the Bible's true. I believe it is. The Bible's true. This is our story. This is a story of human history. Like all humans whoever lived, they, they somehow fit into the realities that are told in this narrative. So, how is the, the gospel good news? Well, quite frankly, we're safe. Like, we're safe from ourselves. We're safe from our, our own foolishness, our own sin, uh, our own inward curvature on the self. And we're, we're brought back into right relationship with God. And that, that, that phrase, I, I grew up in the church, maybe some of you guys grew up in the church, some of these things that we can like throw around that they sound so, oh wow, like you used that line, oh wow, really impressed, you, you know that theological term. I, there's weight to these things. There's truth to these things. To say that through the gospel, God is actually, I'm going to trip over myself, 
God has actually brought us back into and restored a relationship with the God of the universe. That means something. That has implications. That, that, that plays out into our lives in everyday spaces, everyday conversations, everyday relationships, everyday work environments. And it's really good. Like the, the good news doesn't stop being good once we believe, like once we trust in Jesus for salvation. Like, oh, okay, I believe that's true. I give my life over to Jesus. Okay, now, now how do I, I, I go pursue things? I like, know we go back to this. We go back to, to the one who, who defines reality for us. So that's what we're going to talk about for the second half. And we're also going to look at what keeps us from believing the gospel. Like what are the opponents of the gospel? So let's take about seven, eight minutes. Um, we got drink, again, restrooms are, are down at the end of that hallway. Uh, more drinks back there. If we need more snacks, we can grab those. But yeah, we'll come back together. All right, question for you guys. Again, I'm so reluctant to break this up. We can stay like till 9.30 tonight if you guys want. But I have a question. So first, first discussing question on uh, the sheet here under discussion number one. Just hearing from you guys, why does the gospel often feel irrelevant to everyday life? So this thing called, called the gospel, why does it often feel so distanced from, so irrelevant, so like it doesn't have meaning for just everyday existence in this world. Throw it out. I just feel like I'd say like what's relevant right now or like what's popular, none of it really says um, that I personally need to like rely on anything that I need help. Yeah, yeah, and it's like that's what's valued in society. Like if you if you can make yourself and, and be successful on your own, that's what's most valuable. Yeah, it's good. What are you guys saying? Seems like it, it feels really old sometimes. Huh. It feels like outdated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Modern day. Yeah, totally. Yeah, this story from way back when. Yeah. 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 That's good. It's like uh, like you take a piece of scotch tape, you know, like put it on carpet over and over again. Pretty soon it doesn't stick anymore. Like I, I did a search on book titles written in the past few years that have the gospel have gospel in it anywhere. I started writing them down. I got tired of doing it. I had like thirty. I was like, this is insane. And so when you hear it, you're just barraged with it over and over again. It loses some of the, the weight, like the, the felt weight to it. That's a great point. Yeah. I think oftentimes we live our lives as, okay, I'm going to live my life, oh, and on the side, I have Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's great. That's good. Yeah, I, uh, that's really good. I was thinking too, so I, the middle school youth group that I went to, this couple named Mike and Pam Bandy, and they had like, it was amazing, they had 
like 25 different arcade games in one of their rooms. So on Friday and Saturday nights, they would just open up their home and kids would flock in. But they also had a youth group on Sunday nights. Um, and every once in a while, when everyone was super loud, like he would just stand at the front and start whispering. And he would say, I don't know what he would make up, but he'd say, if anyone would come up to me right now and stand quietly right next to me, shoulder to shoulder, you know, we're middle schoolers, so we get excited about silly things. But he's like, I will, you and a friend, I'll pay for entirely to go to Disney World. All expenses paid, flights, everything. You know, we hear about this later, and we're like jumping out of our seats. But in the moment, we're, we're off hearing different things, different conversations, so many different voices around us. that no, He did this year after year after year after year. We do it several times a year. No one ever did it. No one ever took him up on this because no one ever actually heard it. There was one girl that actually heard it one time. So there's a caveat. She actually heard it, but it was her first time, and she was super nervous. And she was sitting there by, by herself toward the front, and she was like, I can't go there. I'll be the weird kid. I'm not doing it. So she missed out on that trip. But <laughs> everyone else, we're off having conversations. We're talking about other things. And I think that's so often hit on what a few you people said. It's like there's so many different narratives and stories and values and things that, um, that, are, that are given to us and communicated to us that... It's like, how does that fit into everything else that we're hearing? In fact, it may be that I don't even hear it anymore because something else is dominating my view and my understanding and my framework for what's, what's true and good and beautiful. Those are all good answers. We're, we're going to seek to press into those, each of those, um, over the next few weeks. So I want to look at something called the cross chart now, or the gospel grid that uh, the book calls it. So that's the blue card that you guys have. That's what we're going to march through. All right, so we, we talked about God's holiness, His otherness. Like, He, he is perfect in righteousness. He dwells in, in unapproachable light in and of Himself. And we looked at the fall and how our sinfulness, like, we, we rebelled against this good God. And so there's, there's, a, there's a chasm there. Like, there's a, there's a break there. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ is the Word took on flesh and came and related to us. He came, He lived a life of perfect righteousness. So the holiness that, that we were meant to live in, and holiness, think, don't think arbitrary law moral code. Think rightly ordered joy. Think, the, think uh, affections moving in the right direction. Think loving God with our whole selves such that we live a life of faithfulness. That, that's, that's, that's the biblical definition of holiness. It's actually wholeness in the truest sense. So, so we don't do that. Jesus actually lived into that whole life. See, see, for us, with our sin, we have to pay a certain penalty. Like, we all get justice at some level. Like, we, we understand that. And if, as soon as somebody says, ah, I, don't, I don't believe in all that, well, cut them in line. Like, cut them off in traffic, and you'll see how much they believe in justice. So we all, we all get that. God is a God of justice and righteousness. There, there must be penalty. Now, if, if we offend, if we rebel against, if we push against the, the eternal God, there's an eternal punishment for that. There's eternal death and condemnation for that. It's, it's, it's us pursuing the things that we want forever, which are not God, which means we get judgment. So what we need is a holiness that brings us back into the relationship with God. But we discussed earlier, we can't get that ourselves. Like, we can't do it. We may try, but we just like compound sin with more sin. And, and like moral self-effort that just is raked over with selfish motivations if we're really honest with ourselves. Like, we try to save ourselves, and we're just destitute. So Jesus comes, takes on flesh, and lives a life of perfect righteousness. But here's the thing. Because he's perfect, he has no penalty to pay. 
There is no death penalty for him to actually pay for his own misdeeds, for his own rebellion. So now he has this righteousness that he's able to gift to us. And that comes through the means of him actually dying on a cross, which was the, the worst form of punishment um, in that culture. It was, it was shaming. Like you're, you're stripped down um, either into to nothing or next to nothing. You're hung there on a cross, you know, nailed into the sides. It was the most shaming experience that they could think of at that time. That's what Jesus took on. And, and God's wrath that is meant for us was actually poured out upon Jesus Christ there. So nerdy theologians will call this double imputation. There's a double transaction going on. Jesus takes, it works out really well for us. Jesus takes our sin, wrath, punishment, judgment, on the cross, like bears the full weight of it. That's, that's why he's saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? He feels the rejection and the shame from the Father. He, he feels the disconnect in relationship. Bears that for us. So there's the first transaction. And then he has this righteousness, this holiness that, that, that he has lived. And he gives that as a gift to us. That is the good news of the gospel. That, that is what is so hard for us to wrap our minds around. That though we are, are we're so bad off that the Son of God had to come and die. But we were so insanely loved by the God of the universe that he sent his son to actually die for us. And then he gave us the very thing we need to be reconciled to God. That right there we need to meditate on again and again and again and again. And we're going to look at why. All right, so once we recognize, all right, God is holy, he's perfect, he's good, I'm depraved, I'm needy, I'm sinful, I, got, I, I need I attempts at things, but I really just... I need salvation, and it has to come outside of myself. That's what God does in Christ. He comes to us in Jesus and now reconciles this relationship. That's just going to get confusing. Now this is a cross. So through the cross, which stands, is representing the work of Jesus for us. His life, his death, his resurrection, all of it. He's come as our substitute, as our sacrifice, raised to new life, now reigns over everything for our good. He has come to us and saved us. Now, Oftentimes, like if you've heard this, many of you heard this, this narrative before. If you haven't, totally fine. Like, we all need this same story over and over and over again just to be pounded into our, our heads. It's, uh, that was Martin Luther's argument. My variation of his is, um, so as a kid, I loved the, uh, the, the, I'm still not very good at cooking, but I, I loved when my mom would pull out the meat pounder. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like, it's got a handle and a block, and it's got spikes on both sides. And before she would, like, season the chicken, she would lay the chicken out and, and call me in. So, like, seven-year-old Neil would run in, and I'd grab that thing and just, like, start pounding the meat over and over again. It's the best thing in the kitchen. still is. <laughs> I don't think we have one. We should remedy that. Um, but, that, like, that's what I need for myself with the gospel. Like, that's got to be beat into my, my affections and my loves and my mind over and over and over again to see the world through this reality. So this is how he's come to us. But, but so often we've grown up hearing this story, like you guys were saying, it feels so irrelevant. We basically say, all right, I, I stepped into the family of God. Like I believed, I, I did that thing, I heard the gospel, I, I signed a card, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I met with a, whoever, I did the thing that I was supposed to do. Great, all right, now, now what do I do as a Christian? And what the, 
what the Bible calls us to is to go back to the same reality again and again and again. So, whereas when we first trust in Jesus for salvation, we recognize an element of our sinfulness. But by God's grace, as we grow, and as we see more of God's holiness, we see more of his character and his wisdom and his beauty, we see the world for what it is, like we see in his word the, 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 the depths of wisdom there that exist that help us to see and make sense of life, as we see more God's holiness, his majesty, his glory, we also see, as we just live our lives, wow, I'm, I'm even more sinful than I thought. Like a lot of times as we grow in the faith, we get really discouraged when we're just confronted with, man, I, I responded this way, I, I've been caught in this sinful pattern, in this habit, I've been stuck over here. But the more awareness that we have of our sin is actually evidence of God's grace exposing what's actually there so he may transform us. So we may there in that place see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we may again experience that salvation that is already ours. And so this, this line represents not that our sinfulness becomes more, but the awareness of our sinfulness. It's how deep does the rabbit hole actually go? Actually, I want to read a, a section from the book, The Gospel Center Life. And we, we couldn't steal the square from the basement people, so we'll try after class. If you guys want to pick one up. Um, flip to, where are we at? Page 12. It's on the article called The Gospel Grid. So the second full paragraph there on page 12, it says, Many Christians live a truncated view of the gospel. We see the gospel as the door, the way in, the entrance point into God's kingdom. But the gospel is so much more. It is not just the door, but the path we are to walk every day of the Christian life. It is not just the means of our salvation, but the means of our transformation. It is not simply deliverance from sin's penalty, but release from sin's power. The gospel is what makes us right with God. It's called justification. It also frees us. It also what frees us to delight in God. It's called sanctification, becoming increasingly holy. The gospel changes everything. So how do we grow in the gospel? It's by seeing, and this is awareness, awareness of God's holiness, it's an arrow, and awareness of our sinfulness. And as we do this, as we grow in both of these things, the cross is meant to become bigger and bigger and bigger in our experience. What does that mean? Whereas here, if we only recognize an aspect, like to a certain degree, our sinfulness, like our need for salvation, we only see aspects of God, but not, but not fully, then we're only going to experience grace to this degree. But as we grow in each of these things, there's more capacity, there's more room, there's more opportunity for us to receive this deliverance, receive this salvation, receive this grace from God in our everyday experience, meditating on the truths, meditating on the realities of, this is the God who has come to save us in Jesus. And so actually becoming more and more aware of our sinfulness and more and more aware and dwelling on and meditating on God's holiness, that's the means by which we grow. And we're going we're gonna to look at next week, uh, what is this process of transformation? Like how does this gospel actually get a hold of our heart's affections? How, how does it actually wrangle with our souls such that we love God more in the everyday practical realities of, of, of life? So this is, this is what the, the cross chart represents. Now here's the issue. Tonight's entitled The Gospel and Its Opponents. Here's where the opponents come in. There are things that sneak in here and try to cut off this process. 
so that either we become stagnant or we drift inward so the experience of grace, experience of the cross becomes less and less and less. So let's look at two equal and opposite errors. Bless you. Uh, one, one author has called these fraternal twins from the same womb. Legalism and license. So on the one hand, we have legalism. And on the other, license. All right, so flip over to uh, Galatians 3 and verse 1. All right, so here's another letter from Paul. He's writing to the churches in Galatia. And he's, he's basically been laying into them uh, pretty heavily. Most letters start out with some like really kind greetings initially. This one doesn't. He just jumps right in. Now we get to chapter 3, verse 1. It says, O foolish Galatians, they call them fools, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law, or by the hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham." All right, so here's the deal with uh, the churches in Galatia. They got the gospel 101. Like they, they understood, all right, Jesus died for my sins. I trusted him. I gave my life to him. I'm, I'm united, uh, my life with his, such that I'm reconciled to God. I get that. It's by faith. I can't earn it. Nothing I can do. I can't obey the law sufficiently enough. I'm, uh, I'm needy on my own. I trust in Jesus for salvation. But now, let's, let's do the, the real work of discipleship. Let's do the real work of growth. Let's, let's really move forward in the Christian faith. It's up to me. Like I need to adhere to certain laws. I need to, to make sure I, I shift my life around in the right ways. I need to have the right behaviors. I need to organize my life in such a way that it meets this standard there. And then, I, and then I've done it. And Paul says, you're, you've been bewitched. Like you're fools. You, you, you've been like, caught by some spell, by some evil person who's confused you on what the gospel actually is and what it does in the life of the believer. So look with me. Verse 3 again. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit... Actually, back up to verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the, the assumed answer here is, well, by hearing, hearing with faith. Like, totally, Paul. We get that. We get justification. So justification is in, in the moral courtroom before God. Like, we're declared guilty on our own. Jesus takes that penalty and gives us his righteousness so that we are now declared to be righteous. That's justification. Like they, they've got their doctrine of justification down perfectly. Receive it by faith. We get it. But then he moves on in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what their, what their error is, is thinking that you can rely upon self. 
That we can somehow, well, once, I'm, once I'm in the door with the gospel, now I can, I can rely upon myself. And this comes out in a lot of different ways. Um, you can think of it as being a, kind of a functional righteousness. Um, if you tend toward the legalist side, um, you're going to find yourself creating some sort of platform that you stand upon by which you judge other people. Um, story I always remember from uh, a pastor would come out to, to my undergrad at Fairmount and speak. Uh, when he was in seminary, yeah, so he was an athlete and a scholar, and he kind of prided himself in both. He's actually really good in both, but I would never tell him that. Um, so he, he's in class, and he remembers time and time again, like that there'd be some person who would quote some historical resource and sound really impressive, and you know, he, his name's Eric. He'd be like really frustrated, and, be like, mm. and the thing in the back of his mind, I bet that guy couldn't shoot a free throw to save his life, like falling back on something that he was better. But then he would turn around, and later that afternoon, he'd be out on the basketball court playing with some people. And then someone would, would school him and beat him to the hoop, and he would lose. And then you're thinking in the back of his mind, I bet this guy hasn't read a book in like 10 years. And we, we, feel, we feel the same paradigm in our lives. Like we're always searching for something. What makes me better? What makes me good enough? What, what makes me okay? What becomes my functional righteousness? So this plays out in so many different ways. It, it can be um, something religious, per se. Like, man, I, I read my Bible. I get up at 4.30 a.m., but that's, that's on the bad days. Like, usually it's 4 a.m., and I, I spend a little time fasting, and then I, I skip breakfast intentionally every day, and then I, I read some more at lunch. Like, that can be the, the route that we go. It doesn't have to be that blatant. It can be more subtle. Hopefully it's not that blatant. That'd be really obvious if it was that blatant in your life. But it doesn't have to be in those kind of categories. It can be, man, I, I drive the right kind of car. I, I wear the right kind of clothes. I'm, I'm punctual, and you're not. I'm responsible, you're not. I'm flexible, you're not. Like, we find these things, these platforms that we can stand up upon and, and think, this makes me okay. Now, the reality is, we're, we're all looking for an answer to being okay. Like, we want rest. We want home. We want acceptance. We want love. Like, we, that's basic human need. We long for that. It's not, it's not wrong for us to, to long for that. God has actually created that longing for us. Like, it's that very longing which, which ought to drive us back to God. Uh, Augustine says that uh, in his confessions that our, our hearts are restless until we find rest in you, God. And that, that agitation, that restlessness can, can come out in a lot of different ways. We, we may want respect from other people, to be impressive in front of other people. We may want control over things, make our lives go a certain way. We may want comfort and relaxation. We don't want annoyances and frustrations out there to affect us. Uh, we, may, we may want people to like us and to approve of us and validate us. It comes out in so many different ways. And, and that, that right there is what we're going to press into pretty hard next week. Um, Jeff's going to walk us through like, ha- those things that we desire. How does God actually meet those better in the gospel? Not in some ethereal sense, but actually... God has given to us in Jesus Christ all the things that we need for life and godliness. All the things that we need to be happy and joyous and find comfort and find, find, find a true eternal home. He's actually given those things to us through the gospel. So, legalism, and, and really this, this comes out on this side too, we'll get that in a second. But we tend to find these, these platforms that we can stand upon to make us feel okay, and usually means we, we look down upon other people. We, we can always find those different things. 
So we're creating laws about what it means to actually be a good person, to be the right kind of person, the right kind of human. What does it mean to be human? Well, me. <laughs> like here, here, here's where I draw the borders, everything outside of that. Maybe there's a little wiggle room, but you get too far, and there's only shame and, and, and guilt and condemnation for that. So that, that's what we drift toward. And when we do that, thinking back to that cross chart, I won't draw it up for now, but those lines that I drew across, we begin shrinking the cross because we think we don't actually need Jesus. I think I've got it on my own. Like the standard that I need to meet, I think I'm meeting it. Maybe around religious things, quote unquote, or maybe lifestyle things, or whatever it is, I, I think I've got it. I don't need grace. I don't need the gospel. I, I've kind of hit cruise control on what my life is meant to look like and those who are outside of that, I'm going to give reasons why they're not right and in the wrong, and I'm actually the correct one. And if more people would just be like this human being, then everyone would just be better off. That's the legalism side. So we're trying to earn God's love, God's favor. We're trying to earn something before other people. The other side is license. It's saying, God loves me. He's given himself for me. It's a covenantal love. It's a steadfast love. It's not going anywhere. Therefore, God's commands don't really matter. Like, I, I can live however I want. God's love remains. Flip over to, to Romans chapter... Let's do Romans 6. I guess it's written on your sheet, so that's a little helpful. So Paul's arguing to, to that kind of audience. They're saying, well, God's grace is given. Why does, why does commands matter? Why does the way that I live actually matter before God if, if he's already loved me? He's already done that. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Like this is the, the, the argument that some of the Romans were making in the Roman church. They're saying, well, well hey, if I, if I just sin more then there's more grace to be received, and so God is glorified by pouring out His grace on me. So really, A plus B, I need to sin more. It means more grace, more glory. This is a great equation. So that means it doesn't matter what I do. Paul uses the strongest language that he knows how. By no means. It sounds so weak in our translation. Like, in that context... Honestly, actually my Greek professor, I feel okay saying this because my Greek professor at seminary taught me this. It's like him saying, hell no. There's no way in hell that this could ever be true. Like This is, this is complete, utter heresy when it comes to understanding the gospel. So by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what the doctrine, that, the teaching that Paul is giving here, it sounds so technical, but it, it is, right now it's becoming like the most beautiful theological truth in my life over the past six, eight months. And it's what's called union with Christ. And so what Paul's laying out here is you trust in Jesus. That's not just a, kind of this intellectual assent. I've heard the argument, I subscribe to it, and I can argue for it. That's a part of faith, but that, that's not 
That's not saving faith. That's not what the Bible teaches as being faith. Not just that the mind gets a hold of it. It's that you're giving your life over to, you're entrusting yourself to this God, this God who saves. There's a submission to, a recognition of, a love for, a, 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 a trusting of this God holistically. And what the Bible teaches is when that happens, like when we trust in God for salvation, we are actually spiritually tethered to, united with, brought into intimate connection with the triune God. Now again, this can feel like just one of those theological things we're supposed to believe, oh, you've been reconciled to God and brought into intimate relationship. This is a weighty reality. Like, imagine the implications. That the God of the universe, the all-powerful, all-wise creator of you and of me, of everything that we see, of even the cap- capacities that we have to, uh, to work a job or to relate to people. That God has ushered us into intimate connection with himself. So, 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 so much of the issue in the Christian life is, is not that, that we don't have the things that we need, it's that we don't access the resources that we have. I don't mean necessarily books and stuff, those are important. But, but the spiritual resources, like the gift of love and relationship with God. Like how often do we actually spend time meditating upon that? God, you, you've ushered me into the life of the Trinity? What does that even mean? Help me. <laughs> Help me understand what that means. I know, it's, I know it's something real. I know it's something true. I know it's something you, you've done objectively for me. And even though it's, it's spiritual and unseen, it's still real and felt. Draw me into this. Make me feel it. Uh, a lot of the Puritans would distinguish between union with Christ and communion with Christ. So union with Christ is this objective reality that has been worked as soon as we trust in Jesus for salvation. Like at that point, we're given his spirit, we're brought into the, the life of the Trinity, we're, we're loved forever by him. Our communion is the experience of that union. And that comes through actually pursuing this God, beholding this God, seeing this God. And it's available to us. Like you, you trust in Jesus for salvation tonight. Like the, the, you love him, you know him imperfectly, all of us love him imperfectly. But you know this God, you've trusted in him. You're united with Jesus. And he beckons you to come and be with him, to be in his presence, to commune with this triune God. I, I want to read a, a section from John 17 where Jesus prays for this very reality. He prays that, that this would be the experience in our lives. All right, let's start in verse 14 of chapter 17 in John. I've given them, speaking of his disciples that are immediately with him, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, this is where it brings us in. So that meaningful piece that we looked at earlier, to to make something really good news, it needs to, to be meaningful and weighty for us. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. All of us can trace, our, trace our, our Christian lineage back to that band of disciples. When the gospel went forth, they proclaimed it, started churches, missionary endeavors, trace it all the way back to us here. He's praying for us. Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's asking for unity horizontally, like with one another in the church as the people of God, but then as a part of that unity flowing from, knowing the unity that exists, the intimacy that exists between Father and Son, Father God and the Son of God. Like this kind of intimacy he's, he's ushering us into. He's pleading with the Father, may they know this. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I am them and you and me that they may be per- become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me in love, love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them." Like this is the thing that Jesus is praying for. This is what he accomplishes in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. We're brought home. Like we're brought back to reconciled, kind, affectionate relationship with God the Father. May we press into that. So that was a huge caveat, but I, I just... This is, is like speaking to my soul massively over the past several months, and so it's important. Like that, that, that is what we get in the gospel is union with Christ. And all the implications from that that we're going to unfold in the, over the next few weeks. But going back to Romans, this is, this is the doctrine that, that Paul builds upon to make his case. So again, verse 1 of, of chapter 6. What should we say then? Everybody continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, you, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? So what he's saying is because of this union with Christ, the death that Jesus died has become our death. Like we're actually so tethered to him, so united to him, that we've actually died with him. Where am I? Verse 3. Do you, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus have now become ours. Beca- precisely because we're connected to this Christ. We're connected to this Jesus. We are actually dead to sin. We are actually alive to Christ. Now, now the weird aspect to the, the fact that Jesus doesn't reign completely, like consummately yet, is that the presence of sin is not abolished. 
The power, the penalty of sin is completely gone. But the presence, we still feel it. Like we still see ourselves in patterns of sin. We still see ourselves say things and do things and love things that are completely contrary to what God has called us to. All of us do. All of us do. But what we need to come back to is recognize what is my true identity? Like, what does God actually say that I am? And so we, we, we render dead what is actually already dead. Sin. It's already been killed in our life. We've already been raised to new life. And so now we, we live that way. And so Paul, Paul is just baffled by the, the thought, like even the imagination that somehow we would continue to, to, to have a license to continue on sinning. He's like, really? Don't you understand who you are? Don't you understand what you've been brought from? Don't you understand that the, the life that you've been ushered into? That's not who you are. That doesn't even make sense. You're dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. You've been given everything by him to walk with him. Why? It doesn't make sense. So his argument is really appealing back to union with Christ and our identity as, as human beings who've been loved by this Jesus. So these are the two errors that, that keep us from trusting in Jesus and the gospel, from going back to him over and over again. That it functionally shrinks the, the effect of the cross in our lives. All right, let's... How are we doing on time? Oh. All right, I'm going to summarize for the next, uh, the next three weeks. Um, so tonight, we basically laid out what is this thing called the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is historical and real. Um, it, it, is, it is actually good. <laughs> like, it's, it leads to something really good. Uh, and it, it's meaningful. Like, it's weighty for us. Like, what happened then applies to us today. Like, us being united to Jesus connects us to, to that past historical reality and pulls it into the present. Like, God is still reigning now. Hebrews 2.8. Jesus reigns now. His spirit has been given now. If you trust in Jesus today, like, you're brought into the intimacy of the triune God now. Even though we don't, we don't always see it, we don't always access it, we don't spend much time meditating on it maybe, but it's real. That's, that's who we are, and that's what God has done for us. So we talk about the gospel, and then we talk about the implications of the gospel, the entailments of the gospel. Um, a lot of times we, we can confuse these in our minds, even in our language, um, there's, a, there's a quote that's been attributed to St. Francis of, of Assisi that says, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Two issues I have with that, one minor, one huge. The minor one is, he probably never said it. Like, there's, that was attributed to him in 1989, and like, if you pull fragments together, you can only get about 30% of that, of that statement. So that, that's, that's a side note. The biggest issue I have with that quote is, it is... Biblically speaking, impossible to preach the gospel without using words. So, so when you, you talk about good news, that's actually a report of something. It's a proclamation. It's an utterance of something, of something that happened, a historical reality that we recognize as good and it's meaningful for us. And so and now there are different ways of, of coming at this. It's not like you've got to walk through the, the Romans Road or you know, the Cross Bridge or whatever else. Don't necessarily encourage that. There are different ways to come at this. But there is a story, there is a narrative, there are realities that must be spoken and unpacked and, and, and referenced if we're going to preach the gospel, if we're going to communicate that. So that's the gospel. 
there are implications of the gospel which go forever. A lot of times we get these wrapped up together. We start saying that um, serving the homeless downtown at, at Open Door Ministry, that was preaching the gospel. It's not preaching the gospel. It's important. It's an implication of the gospel. It's, it's the kind of life that, that, is, that is led into by those who've been transformed by the gospel. It puts on display, it embodies, like this is what God does. This is how he transforms. He causes us to, to love people, to sacrifice for people, to care for those who are marginalized and, and on the outskirts of society. That's one implication of, of the gospel. But you don't get there without having the proclaimed gospel. Like you need that story. You need the, the reality of what Jesus did in the the unpacking of that, um, or else you don't get to the actual transformed life. So what I'm not saying is there are all kinds of things that Christians are called to do and be faithful in, uh, in all different spheres of life. Absolutely. Go, go, go serve in open-door ministries. We're doing Mission Connect here in, what, like two, three weeks, and we're going to have, I think we have 20 different organizations throughout the city, different ministries down in the basement. And we want anyone and everyone to come, especially gospel communities, uh, so they can latch on as a gospel community to serve and serve in various spheres throughout the city. We already support financially through time, through many of our members that are on staff there, different organizations. Um, just loving your neighbors, uh, loving your, your family, like those, those who are within your home, your, your friends, um, putting on display what does a, a humble, sacrificial life look like. Those are all entailments. Those are all implications of what the gospel does in our life. So absolutely essential. Like, if, if there is no fruit being born in the life, there probably is no true root, right? Like, we, we need that, that the fruit points back to that root. But it, the root is the proclaimed gospel. The root is this narrative. The root is Jesus Christ came, he, he took on flesh, he loved us, he lived a righteous life, he died an unjust death so that we might be ushered in, so that, that he might bear our penalty uh, and then raise a new life so that we can be united to him forever. So the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how does this gospel actually get worked out in, in transforming our lives, um, heart transformation. Like, we still do the things that we don't want to do, Romans 7. Why is that? And how does the gospel actually not just shift around behaviors, but actually uproots wrong aspects of our lives and, and reestablishes joy and affections in the right direction? And then uh, week three is going to be looking at uh, relationships. How does the gospel get played out into uh, to, to marriage and family, uh, to parenting, to uh, friendships, to roommate situations, to coworkers, to bosses, to random people that we meet, to the barista, to everyone? What, what, what do relationships look like in light of the gospel? And then week four is going to be uh, the gospel in the city. So what, what does a public faith look like? Uh, what does it look like to step into our different jobs, our vocations, our workplaces? Um, what does it mean to, to be a Christian? Um, faithfully, to have a faithful presence there and to, to step into the world as, as it has actually been created um, by this God. So that's where we're going for the next few weeks. Um, if you guys want to pick up one of those books, again, a lot of good articles, a lot of good exercises that we didn't have time to get to tonight, um, but encourage you, go through some of them. They're, they're actually, it'll walk through some of these things, like what, what are our functional righteousnesses that we, we appeal to, um, and then how, how do we actually approach that? So books are over there on the table. James will swipe your credit card, um, pay cash as well. Um, all right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this good news. God, may, may it tap into our imaginations. May it, 
step into arenas and aspects of our hearts where uh, we didn't think it was possible. Uh, so expand the borders of, of the ways in which we experience um, that, that union that we have with you that's been accomplished through your work. Uh, may our gratitude grow. May our experience of the cross grow. May we, may we see with, with new eyes. <laughs> may, may we love this gospel. Uh, may, it, may it transform every aspect of our lives um, as we move forward. So, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, may we recognize more and more the, the reason that we, we should be thanking you. And, uh, and glorify your name. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.